You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how you doing? I'm okay, uh, and I was I was doing well until I realized precisely at this moment I did not have anything figured out for right now. <laughs> Uh, normally, you know, I, I think about something in the hours leading up to the show and I'm like, oh, I got it. But no, I, I obviously did the readings for tonight and I was all set and ready to go and uh, things were good. And then I realized just as you hit the record button, fuck me, I don't have anything. Thankfully, I have killed enough time. I have fumbled around long enough to have something pop into my brain. What was it like chatting up Kelly Jones? You know, Kelly Jones was a really nice guy. Both he and Matt Wagner, really cool. They were really excited about their project. It was funny. Like The the question that I was really curious to ask, and I would have loved to have had more time to tease it out, was I'd been curious if he had a particular favorite issue or story. And for him, it's less about the, the issue or the story as the sequence. You know, he has things that he remembers drawing. And I didn't quite tease out what his favorites of those were. And if I had had more time, if the episode of WMQ didn't run, you know, 20 minutes longer than usual as it was, I'm going to give away a little bit of a secret, but I think Dan would be okay with that. And it's not really a secret. Dan and I go in with pretty detailed question sets for the creators that we're interviewing. The best interviews are the ones where we need only half of those questions because the creators want to talk. And this was one of those. That has to be one of my favorite things about comics journalism is that you are talking to somebody who is really interested in their work, right? Uh, and let's be let's be honest. So let's just it's promotional for them. So they if they're not excited to talk about it, they at least try to fake it. They might not want to talk about the same things that you want to talk about, but they're at least there to talk about it. So that's good. But if you get somebody like you and you really dig their shit and like they are proud of their shit and you can just really dig around in their shit, it can be a good experience. And so I'm 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 glad you guys had a good time. I'm jealous as shit, uh, but I'm glad you had you guys had a good time. It's the closest I've ever come to fanboying on one of these interviews. I resisted the urge. I didn't do it. (laughs) And it comes from working in the theater a little. You never want to be that guy who stumbles across some actor who it might be the theater actor or it might be someone who has Hollywood credits. And you don't want to be the one who gushes over them because it's unprofessional. Absolutely. I was doing media at Dragon Con down in Atlanta and uh, his name escapes me at the moment but I had an interview with the voice actor behind Master Shake 
Oh, uh, D. Snyder. Dana Snyder, Dana Snyder. There we go. There we go. D. Snyder is someone else entirely. Yeah, I know, right? It's like, what hair band is that? And he was hilarious, of course. A very good, fun interview. And then the people running the con when it was over wanted me to like take my picture with him. And I'm like, that's not what I'm here for. What's wrong with you dipshits? Uh, so Dragon Con, run by dipshits. Do not endorse. I might have taken that a little too far a couple of times in that there were some actors who did shows at the theater where I was working that I probably could have gone up to them and been like, listen, I love your work. But when I was younger, it took me a little more to realize that there's a line between being a fanboy and just complimenting someone's career and the fact that you like what they do. I mean, I wish I had had the the time to say that to John Glover, who did a play at the theater, or uh, James Urbaniak, the voice of Doc Venture. In retrospect, I wish I had been like, you know, just said to him, I really like his work and had brought one of my seasons of the Venture Brothers for him to sign. No. That would have been within reason, I feel. You don't want to go and be like, oh, let me sit here and talk to you for half an hour about the things that you've done, or let me interrupt your meal. No, you don't interrupt their meal ever. That's rude. Wrestling fans are the absolute worst about this. They will uh, stalk arenas waiting for people to get there. They'll stalk airports. It just absolutely line crossing behavior and so very little self-awareness. But yeah, like don't somebody's just trying to get through an airport. Leave them the fuck alone. Uh, when somebody's trying to just walk into an arena, leave them the fuck alone. Yeah, I, I, I always kind of wonder, like, what if I saw somebody who I admired, like, out in public, like a celebrity? I just give them like a like a little head nod, like, hey, you're you're cool, like a thumbs up. Because people people at the end of the day are just fucking people. They want to be unbothered. I think my one time where I interacted with someone really like top tier who I interacted with them completely like they were anybody else. It was the end of a shift. And we were, I didn't even know why I would have been working this late at this point, because by this point I was management and I should not have been closing the box office. But I was closing the box office and I was walking out and Amber had baked cookies and I brought them in and there were a few left. So I was bringing them home with me because I didn't want to leave them in the box office because, you know, they could attract ants. And as I'm leaving the theater, that's how we get ants. Yes. Walking out from the administrative offices because it was rehearsals was Ben Vereen. And I just nodded. I was like, oh, hi, Mr. Vereen. Uh, my wife made these cookies. Would you like one? And he's like, well, I would. And he'd try one. <laughs> hey, your wife, these are very good cookies. So Ben Vereen complimented my wife's cookies. Celebrities, they like cookies too. Who doesn't like cookies? Commies. That's who. That's how you tell who's a communist if they don't like cookies. But you know who's not a communist, Matt? Who? The subject of tonight's episode. Ah, you got the transition in there. Excellent. <laughs> yes, indeed. Because tonight we're, we're starting a string of Patreon request episodes. And first up is our first Patreon backer, Dan. Dan Grote. 
Uh, and his request, based on an episode we did a ways back where he heard about this character and needed to know more, we have got three stories tonight about one of Gotham's best PIs, the mashed man himself, Joe Potato. Uh, uh, I am going boy. to do my best to avoid most of the potato puns so that Alan Grant and John Wagner did not do. Uh, so... Look, there are four Joe Potato stories. Yes. <laughs> the one we already did and these three. There's apparently an appearance in Shadow of the Bat 50, but as that was like a lot of like retrospective, I think that that was just a flashback to one of these stories. Joe Potato is an interesting character um, because... Because... It's like somebody said, okay, we need Slam Bradley, but this is kind of a jokey bit, and we don't want Slam Bradley to be a jokey character. Let's so let's get another PI in here. And then they're like, okay, uh, we gotta give him some kind of character, right? He's gotta be some kind of something. Oh, let's give him a funny name. Let's give him a funny name. Uh Joe Rutabaga? Joe turnip joe potato joe potato okay is that gonna be his uh his nickname or no no no, no. it's gonna be his real name it's real name it's joe potato oh okay well uh what else about him well he's gonna have a funny looking face so he's gonna kind of look like a potato but his name his real actual name is joe potato why is he gonna look like a potato shut up okay uh anything else about him Oh, he's going to make, like, potato puns. And talk about his mom. Yeah. The thing is always talking about his Aunt Petunia. So Joe Potato can't talk about his aunt. So he's got to be Mrs. Potato's boy. Yeah. Mrs. Potato. Yeah. It's fascinating in that I feel like Grant and Wagner had more of a backstory for this guy. That somewhere there's like the Joe Potato story Bible that's like 20 pages of background <laughs> and we never get enough into it because he only appears in these four stories. But outside of his face, outside of his name, outside of his puns, he's more or less a stock PI character. With some martial arts stuff going on, he gets in a couple of shots on Batman, which is impressive. And we'll get there. Yeah, it's like, why wouldn't you use Slam Bradley or Jason Bard? Other than possibly Grant and Wagner didn't know those characters existed. Oh, come on. If you could have write Batman, you probably know that Slam Bradley exists. Uh, 1980s and British imports? Maybe not. Slam was not around for a while there. He didn't pop up for a decade plus. Until Brubaker brought him back. And since then, he's been a fixture again. We'll get into a little more of this as we get into these stories. This is probably something we should do more when we have these themed episodes, is talk a little about the character in general before we get into the specific stories. I've thought about that a few times, and I've never remembered to make the notes in my notes. But we did it organically this time. No, no, absolutely no, And that was absolutely no pun intended on, you know, potatoes. Like, he came out, and I was like, God damn it, I just made a potato, sort of a potato pun again. 
I swear, I, I've got maybe one or two in my notes. And once those are done, I will make no more potato puns. I will but... spud no more forever. <laughs> Our first story of the night is Ecstasy. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 594. The writers are Alan Grant and John Wagner, with art by Norm Brayfogel, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Todd Klein, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. The cover date is December of 1988. A disturbed man has three bombs and is going to use them to hurt Gotham's drug trade, no matter if innocents get caught in the crossfire or not. Batman and Joe Potato are both chasing him, and it's only a matter of time before someone gets fried. Oh! Oh! As I said, there's one or two in these synopses, but that's about it. So we are coming into this shortly after the first ventriloquist story. We're about a year after that. So we're still very early in the Grant Wagner, Bray Fogle detective era. And this story does have a couple of ties to that story, as we'll get to. But this is an odd little one-off. You know what it reminded me of, Matt? What? Oh, you you, you know. You know. You absolutely know. I'm, I watch I'm... and enjoy three things. American Dad, uh-huh. Star Trek... Uh huh. Drag Dragnet. There you oh, go, buddy yeah. boy. There blue you boy. go. Yeah. Blue, yeah, Blue Boy. Absolutely reads like one of the just the best anti-drug Dragnet episodes. This stuff is your scum for pushing this on our streets. Oh, How yeah. dare you push these pills? If Batman gets pretty hard on these traitor bros who are doing some ecstasy. And yeah, this treats ecstasy the way Reefer Madness treated marijuana. Exactly. You know, this guy drops a little too much ecstasy, and now he's hearing voices and building bombs and killing people. And how precisely this day trader knows how to build bombs with a remote control? Shut up. Uh, but yeah, this this is every bit the classic Dragnet episode, The Big High, where if you uh, if you do marijuana, your baby will drown in a bathtub and you will be sent to the loony bin. What's the, the Simpsons did a parody of that once with a baby and a sandwich. Ah, California cheeseburger. The plot here is really very simple. Guy gets too high. Guy has is having some sort of dissociative episode where he's hearing voices, builds these three bombs, and is planning to use them to somehow disrupt the drug trade, maybe, question mark? Use them randomly against things and people he believes are associated with drugs? Yeah, and the disembodied voice is also only somewhat disembodied because it's embodied with these floating eyes around his head. And there's at least sort of initially the question being that we do exist these stories in a universe where there are, you know, weird things that can possess you and make you do things and telepaths. 
whether or not there is someone manipulating him. But no, no, he's just had a little too much X and is now out of his mind. Such a weird book to pick a party drug. It is. And this was 88. I wonder when ecstasy, and I should have looked this up, and I'm going to riff for a second and see when MDMA slash ecstasy became a thing. It dates back to 1912. According to the comic. I mean, according to the uh, National Institute for Drug Abuse as well, 1912. So, so, and then the book references this too. Uh, MDMA was added to the Schedule 1, our worstest drugs ever list in 1985. Yep, so right before here. And it has remained a Schedule 1 substance since then, with the exception of a brief period of time between 1987 and 1988. So apparently MDMA was a big deal right around this point. And it's interesting that we've got This issue, which is using a real drug after we had fever with the ventriloquist and Scarface before, which is creating a fake drug. And we've seen media do, you know, both approaches like uh, the Batman had drops and it hurts the realism, but you don't have to get into these kind of silly debates. Maybe you could have done cocaine here that would have i think felt more organic certainly would have been just as easy to have you know these fucking trader bros all coked up it certainly wouldn't read as silly now but maybe ecstasy in what year was this again 88 maybe ecstasy is a little bit more foreign maybe it hasn't been miley cyrus is not on the radio singing about ecstasy right so I, I I get it, but at the same time, it's 30 years later, it's a bit silly. This guy is dissociating hard. Oh, yeah. To the point that Joe has been hired to stop him. And as it turns out, he flat out pulled a Harvey Dent here and called Joe Potato to stop himself while his evil two-face persona was distracted by something else this absolutely strikes me as comics once again not getting exactly how dissociative personality disorder works i mean i guess that's possible but also we get the impression that this guy just kind of went on a bit of a weekend bender this isn't someone who's been taking ecstasy constantly for extended periods of time I mean, yes, a single bad trip is absolutely possible, but it also stretches credulity. That it does. And so he's got the three bombs. And the first one, I I also question, he had it hooked up to his own car. Was he planning to use that as the last bomb and blow himself up with something at some point? The first couple of pages of this are really, really busy. Really busy. And just to say it, listen, I love Norm Brayfogle. We've said that every time we've seen Brayfogle art. 
he's inking himself here and it's a little blockier and not quite as clean as when Steve Mitchell, who often inks him, is inking him. This is kind of rough as Bray Fogel art goes. It's still better than a lesser artist on the book, but it's not Bray Fogel as well as I would anticipate a Bray Fogel story looking. Because what, the first page is just a splash page with the history of ecstasy, basically. Both the drug and the word. Like an OED definition of the word ecstasy is there. And we will see this more than once tonight. This story is heavily narrated. Don't Um, even get me started on the narration we're going to see tonight. (laughs) This is this is a light feathery touch compared to what we're going to see. Yeah, uh, our dissociating trader Ed here is talking to himself slash this other voice throughout. And it starts out right there and it goes Joe shows up and again, I feel like we were supposed to be pulled in and fascinated by this new character with these potato puns, you know, a chip on my shoulder and my skins. Remember when potato skins were like the big snack food things? They were supposed to be better for you than potato chips. Mm, Love potato skins. Oh, they're good, but... And the potato skin chips, those are good too. Yes, they are, but they're not any better for you than regular potato chips. Or not by much, no matter what. So one of my favorite American dad jokes, uh, Rogers looking at the uh, the health information uh, for uh, Sun Chips. And he's like, oh, these are are better for you, right? Oh, no, they are not. Yes, exactly. Guess what? Diet soda? Just because it has less sugar doesn't mean it doesn't have all sorts of other crap in it. Nothing is better for you than anything else, except not eating things that are bad for you or drinking. Joe here, as I said, he when he first confronts Batman, because he's trying to stop the car that Ed has given to some guys he nearly hit with his car, and Batman and him get into a tussle, and Joe actually hits him a couple times impressive i also we'll see it when we get to the third story especially but joe is is kind of harvey bullock light and when you put the two of them in a scene together it becomes very clear how very similar joe potato and harvey bullock are the way it's described on the page right you almost want to say that potato should look more like the elephant man right because here's here's the dialogue right Correct me if I'm wrong. This is his introduction, correct? Yeah, this is, uh, again, first appearance. The name's Potato, Joe Potato. I'm a private eye working out of the South Side. And before you ask, no, it ain't a disease or a mutation. I was born this way. And this is part of where the art is, to what you were saying earlier, uh, rough. Potato's face just looks a little craggly. If you want me to believe that, by God, he looks like a potato, like, give me something more. I need some kind of lumpy, misshapen mess. He shouldn't look that much similar to uh, Harvey. Again, if that's part of the character, but if his 
disfigurement is all in his head, then that should be fleshed out. And maybe that was in the secret Joe Potato Bible. Yeah, he just looks, as you said, craggly. He looks wrinkly. He looks like he was a prize fighter who got smacked around a little too much. Yeah, he looks like Mickey Rourke. Yes, yes, Mickey Rourke would play Joe Potato in The Batman 2. I would watch that movie. Oh, (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. Joe Potato going up against uh, the Penguin would be perfect. And one absolutely delightful timestamp here is Batman has, he's trying to figure out where Ed works and he needs to get in touch with Alfred back at Wayne Manor to go to, you know, use the bat computer. And what does Batman do? He calls Alfred on a payphone. Oh, of course he does. No walkies, no car phone, nothing. He goes to a payphone to call Alfred. Again, it's a very good Dragnet comic. And once again, as we're early in Grant and Wagner's time with Batman, and we're at the point where I feel like writers were still trying to get a little bit more of a feel of where Batman is now post-crisis. The no-kill rule is a little softer here because Ed has his last bomb and he's in his office and he's about to blow up his buddies who got him the drugs in the first place. Bruce just pushes him into a vault and has Joe Potato close it on Ed So Ed blows himself up rather than everybody and himself. And then after that, he looks in on uh, what was left and he says, oh, yeah, he's dead. Batman of even a couple of years later would have found a way to stop Ed or would have at least shown more remorse isn't the right word. Empathy, more... He would have felt bad that Ed died versus here yeah. where he's like, Meh. again, this is the same Batman who was going to blow up that door in ventriloquists and Scarface's, you know, henchman's crack house. And he's like, well, I don't want to take a life, but if this falls on somebody, they're going to die. So be it. And Batman takes to Joe Potato pretty quick. Like by the end of this, he and Joe, you know, they shake as if they really worked together on this case. And really, Joe just followed Batman around and was there to push that vault door closed on Ed. It's not like he and Joe really worked the case together. You up on your bond? A little bit. I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of the movies. So, Slam Bradley is to Felix Leiter as Joe Potato is to Jimbo, whatever his last name was. Uh, Or what's his name? No, 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 no. His name might not have been Jimbo. He just called James Jimbo. But it was the goofy CIA man for the Pierce Brosnan bonds. Oh, I know who you mean. And that's when you said it. I, I immediately meant, figured who you meant. But yeah. Yeah, I can see that that's a that is a fairly apt analogy. That wasn't just Felix Leiter, but that a different iteration of Felix, because 
they that was not it was not Felix Leiter. I I will almost stake my entire life on that. Jack Wade. There we go. Yeah. I, I like that analogy. I've hit all of my points on this one. Oh, uh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 594, Ecstasy Madness. Time to beg Bard. We are up to 330 stories on the big board. That's 110 episodes. It is. Number one is still the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. At number 50, we have a Savage Innocence, the issue where the Joker gets the power of the Spectre. Coming in at a not-so-sexy 69, the Wayne Family Adventures Volume 1 from last week. Down at 100 is A Lonely Place of Living, the Tim Drake return from the quote-unquote dead from the Tiny and Run. Down at 150 is Fool's Errand, Detective 726, where the Joker and Batman are playing mind games. At 200 is Mayor Mayhem, the final arc of Batman The Adventures Continues, Season 2. At 250 is the Batman Noel graphic novel. 300 is Superman's Secret Kingdom, one of those crazy old world's finests. And hey, 330. Still Curse of the White Knight. Still terrible. Boo. We have a lot of Grant and Brayfogle on this list. Because there are generally some good comics. On my cheat sheet for tonight, I think I've got this in second place. Yeah. Um, What I want to see is the second Joe Potato story which is the first one that we covered. That is, I have to find it on the old big board. We've got a lot of stories in the big board. It's becoming harder to find things. I really need to add creator credits on the big board. Ah, here we go. That story is at 186, Sisters in Arms. That's Batman and Joe are together and... Sarah Essen, Vicky Vale, and Catwoman are running a parallel story. That is probably better than this. Yes. I and we've got Fever right there at 182, which is probably better than this. I agree as well. I'm thinking this is somewhere in like the 200, like somewhere in that 200 to like 225-ish range. Oh, maybe a little lower than that, because I don't know if this is better than the Joker's boner. <laughs> 220. Oh, this, that's a good one. And this suffers from just being overwrought. And as you said, it hasn't aged terribly well because it's such a panic story. All right. I would I would put this above Dark Knight, True Batman Story at 232. Yeah. And I also kind of and I know this is like jumping around a little bit. I also kind of like it better than Lockup at 213. How did Lockup get so high? The concepts behind Lockup are fundamentally better. And we gave Chuck Dixon the closest thing we could ever give to credit by saying, you know, he actually went out of his way to write a story that did not reflect his politics. 
And I, I, I like Lockup as a character concept. It's just he never really works as well as the concept is. I think I'd put this above Officer Down and yep. Spider-Man, Batman, 224 and 225, respectively. Yeah, I, so I think that might be its spot. Because I think uh, I like I Am a Gun, the Legends of the Dark Knight annual, the Paul Piero's annual, more than I liked this. Okay. Okay. The so, new 224? Yes. Our second story of the night is Anarchy, Prophet of Doom. This is Batman Shadow of the Bat, numbers 40 to 41. The writer is Alan Grant, with pencils by John Paul Leon, inks by Ray McCarthy, colors by Sherlyn Van Valkenburg, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. The cover dates are July to August of 1995. Melokia, the prophet of doom, has his eyes set on Gotham. Anarchy, who has inadvertently funded the prophet, has hired Joe Potato to investigate, while the Prophet has also fallen under the shadow of the Bat. What exactly has Melokia planned to bring destruction to Gotham? So, 1995 is an interesting publication for this book because it feels much earlier. It feels wrapped up in a period of, say, the mid to late 80s, almost of the satanic panic era. Not not to say that the book is from the satanic panic, but the idea that we are obsessed with, as a culture, with these people who are continually, like, you know, saying the world is about to end, fake psychics and fake prophets. And that seems very much to me as an idea of the 80s. I think by the time we get to the mid to late 90s, 2000s we seem to be much more jaded and less willing to tune in to sally jesse Raphael as she has on somebody who's like oh the world's gonna end next year except for y2k that was what we were all afraid of in actually i think y2k might have been still a little a couple of years away before people started being really worried about y2k this absolutely feels to me like a bigger idea that got squashed down to two issues because nothing in here is and pardon what could be taken as a potato pun fully baked that that's definitely a potato pun and that's that's one that whatever story it was it's it's come up this story is a whole bunch of ideas that are just kind of there we don't get enough about Malokia to give half a crap about who this one-off villain is. And there's a bunch of ideas around stuff that Anarchy is doing that don't really get fleshed out at all. And Joe Potato is just sort of there conveniently because we needed someone to be Anarchy's leg man. And nothing here feels like it was given the thought that it needed. And the end is ridiculously rushed. Oh, yeah. And the back half of the story, the second issue, where it's anarchy narrating through a letter he left to his parents, also, in a way, dates this book. Coming on the cusp of the digital revolution, Anarchy seems to voice these ideas that, oh, with with the internet, information is going to be democratized, that 
freedom will come from knowledge and we won't be beholden to corporate overlords and the people will be free because they'll have this access to information. And I just want to shove this kid in a locker and I want to and tell the writers, this is not going to work out the way you think it is. We are going to create an entire generation of anarchies who are so certain and so convinced in their misinformation because they have people telling them that you are right. You can find any community for any dumbass belief, not just dumbass beliefs, but actively harmful beliefs. And we will get dumber for having the Internet. The Internet will be one of the worst ever inventions for mankind's peace and stability but it's nice that you are optimistic about it people around this time who knew about the internet believed that that was a common belief and i don't think anybody realized or thought that the technology outstripped humanity's preparation for dealing with the technology in First Amendment theory, we talk about like, you know, what what is free speech good for? Like, why do we protect some things? Why do we regulate something? You know, whatever. Well, one of our central theories is, is the marketplace of ideas, right? That the government doesn't have a place setting the terms of debate, setting the, the rules for the marketplace, because at the end of the day, the ideas that are more capital T true, right, they'll, they'll rise to the top. Ideas should should do combat with each other and that eventually the good ones will rise and we will all be better for it. And the internet fundamentally broke that because truth doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't. So you're, you're right. I can obviously see how this would have been the belief at the time, but it has absolutely not been borne out and it is to disastrous results. So I can't stand anarchy in this book. Uh, and I guess I'm disappointed that he was so wrong. And it's funny that within this story, we find out he made $5 million selling anarchist literature online. And if Etsy stores have taught us nothing, nobody makes $5 million selling random crap online that is legal. No. If Anarchy was selling stuff on the Silk Road or the whatever the equivalent of the Silk Road would have been in 1995, yeah, I could buy that. If he was selling literally anarchists' cookbooks, sure. But he's not making $5 million selling pamphlets about why anarchy is a good thing. But again, I feel like there is a hopefulness in there that ideas can rise to the top. And no, because also the internet has taught us that that kind of stuff, you can just find it for free. I like the concepts of the origin for anarchy here, why he became who he became. But it is put out in such a ham-fisted manner and in such a tedious manner. Ugh. You hated that lettering, that journal that that letter this cursive i'm sure you hated that and i i, I will say it was misguided uh, misguided misguided ponderous but it had a narrative thread to it right okay. if it had just been drivel i would have hated 
the narration more. But, you know, this is one of the few occasions where I didn't absolutely loathe the curse of lettering. Okay. I just, I saw it. It's like, oh, it's curse of lettering. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you, you already read me on my uh, my TV shows. So I, I got to throw you a couple of curveballs in here. Okay. I just, I could not get over how little anything in this story gets fleshed out. Melokia is a frustratingly vague villain. Okay, the, the first issue, he's doing talk shows, talking about the, the end is nigh. He's hiring the unhoused and disenfranchised to wear his the end is nigh sandwich boards. And he's also hiring mercenaries to set up a blimp to blow up central Gotham. And then in part two, as he is sending the blimp with Batman, Anarchy, and Joe Potato tied to it, he goes on TV and flat out is like, hey, I'm doing this thing. As if he wasn't expecting to be carted off to Arkham, which is what happens to him. And he has a, a flashy green amulet that blinds Batman. The something of malice. Yeah, it's just like a whole bunch of ideas thrown into a stew and none of them are dealt with properly. And I, I figure you'd be unsurprised to find out this is his one and only appearance. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, he would be a much more interesting character if he was a grifter or if he more directly challenged anarchy's notions, right? If it was... Oh, yeah, I saw this internet business and how easily all of you dum-dums were influenced to follow me. Yeah, my stuff is complete nonsense garbage. I'm in this for money instead of I'm in this to hasten the end of the world. And again, we exist in a DC universe. We're existing in a world where the cult of Cobra exists. And that's their whole shtick. Bring about the end of the world faster. There are whole evil religious terrorist organizations in the DCU who do this. He's not even that charismatic. Or if he is, we don't really get the impression that he is. We're told that he is. But nothing he does makes me feel like he is that much of a presence. Yeah, as you said, this is squished down into two issues where it seems like we could have had something longer, let's say four or five, without all of Anarchy's thoughts about information. But if you see him building a following, if you see him beginning to convince others that you know we are in the end times, you see Batman trying to combat the fear and the terror that's generated when people think that the world is going to end. Basically, you know, most of the good stuff of Ghostbusters too. And if you wanted Anarchy to be funding him, there needed to be a better reason. Because Anarchy's reason for giving him money is dumb. Like he talks about like he's giving his money to, you know, alternate energy and third party candidacy and anarchist organizations and this guy because he felt like he was bringing people's attention to the things that are destroying the world but so is every other crackpot i wish there had been more pushback against anarchy's ideas in the book like i wish batman would have said something like I wish he would have lived to understand how wrong he was. Something. 
Although Batman doesn't know any of his ideas here because all of that is told in a completely separate thread. And Batman is unconscious for the entire second half of this story. The second At least half, Batman didn't drown. Well, neither did Anarchy. He's alive. I don't know what the purpose of this story was. And Alan Grant loves Anarchy as a character. He will write a four-issue Anarchy miniseries and then an Anarchy ongoing that is canceled after eight issues. As it should have been. Yeah. Especially with the end. Oh boy, wait until we get to the end of the Anarchy. Wait till we cover that Anarchy series. Oh boy. I don't want to. Well, fortunately, we don't have to unless somebody requests it. This story does the character no service. And him and his kooky biofeedback helmet. Again, new age, 90s goofiness there. Should have been like working on his speed reading. This is a Joe Potato episode and we barely talked about Joe Potato because, again... Joe's unconscious for a chunk of this and then shows up. I don't want to die. But he once again proves himself to be a putz. Like he will take money from anybody, right? Yeah. If, if, if the money's green, he's on the case. Which might've been a more interesting element to play with the character. Is he truly amoral? Because that's, that's fine. A purely amoral PI is a very noir concept. But we We don't even know if he's a good detective. The last story, he needed Batman to, you know, he needed to follow Batman to find Ed. Here, he found, okay, he found Malokia's hired goons at an old uh, phosphate factory. And they're making more bombs out of the old fertilizer. By the way, again, something we could not do post 9-11. Flying a big old blimp into the center of Gotham to blow up buildings? Nope. Nope. No. And we also, just as an aside to mention it, do get maybe over the course of these two issues, so 20, 48 pages, six to eight pages of the continuing narrative or the beginning of the narrative about Jim Gordon running for mayor in the Armand Kral, Jim Gordon, Marion Grange election that we've seen played out in some of the other books from this period that we've talked about. There was something there because the guys who are backing Gordon are clearly backing Gordon because they think as uncorruptible as he has proven, they're a bunch of rich business guys. I think they're figuring they're going to be able to, you know, use his influence. But we never really get that as I think the narr- the narrative of that arc continues. And more than that here, when you have anarchy talking about how broken the political system is, yeah, it cuts for him talking about that to this guy convincing Gordon to run for mayor. But without doing any more with Gordon there, there's nothing to the story. There's no reason why that is there in a story that already is overpacked. So much of that, the just to get the back half, just it's so groan inducing. Anarchy's whole origin story is that he had a pen pal. Pen pal in uh, I suppose some Soviet or communist country. 
I was thinking Central or South America. Somewhere where the things weren't good. The political system wasn't good. He runs into some adversity and he tries to tell his dad about it. But his dad's like, well, that's another country. We can't fix that. And then Anarchy's like, and then I learned about war and how war is bad and about how you know, these handful of corporations like cause war. Like it, Red is just so much 15 year old inspired, just drivel. And I'm like, I, I understand what you're trying to do here. Like you're, you're trying to write the optimism of this young character, but his ideas are still I'm not going to say half baked. I'm not going to say half baked. I'm not going to say half baked. They're still just mashed potatoes. He is 15. You know, he he is like every other 15-year-old who thinks everything in the world is wrong, only he happens to have genius-level intellect, even without his mind-expanding whatevers, and is fucking with the world because of it. Tim is in here and barely does anything, especially as Anarchy will become one of Tim's major foes, logically, because they are peers. It was nice to see some John Paul Leon art. Yeah, pretty looking book. It looks real nice, but the story itself is just not there. I got nothing else. I'm all out, so that means it's time to put Shadow of the Bat, number 40, 41, Anarchy, Prophet of Doom on the big board. All right, so we're we're lower than the last one. Yes. All right, I've got a ceiling for you. Okay. 262, Batman, the Superman of Planet X, the Batman of Zurinar story. Not better than that. And I will give you a floor, Catwoman Election Night. Yeah, I was I was looking at that, and I would, I would definitely agree. So we're somewhere between 262 and 283. This has the odd problem of being both too short and too long. Yeah, you don't find you don't find too many stories that can come in that just that right spot of bad. All right, so what about Mister Wayne goes to Washington at two seventy two? If we're talking about things that have backwards politics that don't quite work, at least like Bruce wasn't a Pollyanna in that story. Like he might not have understood exactly why. Congress wasn't going to give a shit. He wasn't just like, why is Congress being mean to me? Why is is Congress dysfunctional? So I'd say probably this is better than that. Or that is better than this. Okay, so that's better than this. What about last week's President Batman? That is sort of an apples and oranges comparison. I'd put this above that. Okay, Gods of Gotham at 276 is also ponderous. This is shorter than that, though. Right under Holy Terror, then? Right under Holy Terror, new 276. Our final story of the night is I Was the Love Slave of a Plant-Based Killer. This is Batman's Shadow of the Bat, annual number five. The writer is Alan Grant, with pencils by Stefano Raffaelli, inks by Ray McCarthy, Stan Woke and Drew Garachi, colors by Noel Giddings, letters by Ken Lopez, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. The cover date is September of 1997. Joe Potato 
has been hired to track down a stolen ancient crystal skull by Pamela Isley. Potatoes and poison ivy don't mix in this Pulp Heroes annual. You never want poison ivy in your potatoes. Uh, apparently that line just killed Amber. She literally just like doubled over in laughter from that particular line. I think that's actually what caused the potato famine. It might have. So we we covered one of these Pulp Heroes annuals before with I Am a Gun. And this one, Alan Grant got the assignment and he ran with the assignment. Oh, he sure did. We this... got betrayal. We got uh, noir. We got uh, femme fatale. We, we got all you could want. Hard-boiled narration. And the narration is better here. We got the good girl and the bad girl. It's got every noir trope you could imagine crammed into this annual. And it's fun for that. Yeah, and it it works, right? Uh, it's got these nice chapter breaks in it that all kind of build to these little crescendos. Joe probably finds his place as just like this terribly hard luck character like he is both funnier than slam bradley and sadder than slam bradley he finds his place just in time for it to be his last appearance ever yeah and again it's because it's a noir joe's the protagonist of this story and this one is flat out fully narrated by joe potato this is the most joe potato story of all but while he's the protagonist, he's not the hero. And there's even questions about how good a guy he is. There are questions about how much Ivy is influencing him and how much of his following her around and not being good to Alice, his girl, is him just being wowed by a pretty face. He was like, oh, she's really gorgeous and she's into me. So I'll just keep the other one around just in case. But I got to pursue the looker. Look, I'm just an ugly potato man, right? Somebody comes on to me. I, I look, I, I got to I got to do if he is a scumbag, if he has scumbag tendencies, he does redeem himself at the end. He's bleeding out just a little bit. It's just a flesh wound. But he's like, you know what? I'm not going to let Alice see it. I'm going to let her say her piece. And then I'm going to let her go. He's not a... He's at no point crosses the line to villain or total scumbag. But he does have that noir thing where, you know, the, the noir detective always had the girl Friday who pined after him. And he was always making eyes at the gorgeous femme fatale. Only since this story is from 1997, the girl Friday realizes it and is like, you know what? Screw you, which you didn't get in a 30s or 40s pulp noir. She had to continue to pine for him in those stories. Here, Alice does not. This has some really great pulp narration. There's one line where Joe's talking about, you know, decking some guy, and he said he gave him a Gotham kiss. Oh, I picked that, too. That's solid. 
that that is was probably my line of the book. It's like it's just it's a perfect noir line. And the crystal skull with the ability to summon plant golems. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily work in a noir, but it works in a pulp. And this blends both your noir and your pulp into one story that works well. It does. The monster plant creatures were a good touch, as was the title. That mouthful of a title. It really works for what this thing was trying to be. Yeah. I'm curious to go back as, and we read the rest of these pulp annuals, but I cannot think of anyone that got the assignment better than this. This just embraces the pulpiness. But it is here where Bullock and Bach, I guess were partners for longer than I thought they were. I always picture Bullock and Montoya as partners. I can't remember when Bullock and Bach became regular partners. But when they show up here, Bullock and Joe Potato butt heads immediately. And I mean, part of that is probably that they are pretty similar. But also, I like Joe's, you know, he was, you know, I always wanted to be a cop. Even got as far as training school. It was guys like him that stopped me. You know, Harvey Bullock, those those good luckers of the world. <laughs> right. Those Hollywood stars. Yeah. And again, we get the impression that he's supposed to be truly ugly. And again, he's just sort of wrinkly and craggy. He's not Killer Croc. We need that Bible. We really need to see what the intention was here. Like, is he just a sad luck loser who has some type of you know obsession with his appearance that's not that bad or do we have artists who are not going far enough in his physical potato-ness yeah i don't know i think it's probably the latter but i'm not sure and by the way this stefano raffaelli who draws this i had not realized he was an artist who was working this far back. I could not get over that because he's a guy I remember. I mean, he's still working. He drew uh, Blue Wall. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's he's done some of the Night Terror stuff. He's got a new book with John Ridley starting this month uh, out of IDW. But when I read it, I was like, really? And I went back and I looked and... I was shocked. I mean, he was doing a lot of work in the mid nineties, you know, over at Valiant, some, some DC, but it was like, this is someone who's had a, a much longer career than I thought he had, which is, it sounds like damning with faint praise, which is not, I like Stefano Raffaelli, but yeah, it was, it was interesting to see. And his style has is, is grown a lot over the years. This has a, a sort of imagey sort of vibe to it in places, that, that 90s style. You would not recognize this as the same guy who drew Blue Wall. No, not at all. It's, it's cool to have seen that, to see this as an artist whose style has really developed over the years. Not to mention, he's been doing parts of uh, Gotham Nocturne. Some of the issues that weren't Raphael Albuquerque 
some of the other, that that Rom V detective stuff. So he's working as recently as a few issues ago on that. Huh. Batman is not in this story a lot. He's only here a little bit in each chapter to be like, Joe, she's not good. Get yourself checked out because that's Poison Ivy and she's put the whammy on you. She is not that into you, bud. And we are at a point with Ivy. We're getting the transition from the 60s through the 80s, early 90s Ivy of the femme fatale just in it for the money and to manipulate men to the eco-terrorist Ivy here. We're not quite to the poison Ivy that we've gotten used to seeing in the past couple decades, but we're much closer than we've been in any of the other 80s and 90s Ivy that we've seen. So if this pulp annual worked, what of any do you remember of some that didn't work? Since, of course, we can't just easily find these. Oh, no. Again, most of these are, I read them when they they came out. So it's been a long time. I remember the Batman one also being pretty good. Because that was J.H. Williams on art on that one. So that's, I remember that one being very pretty. The Nightwing one is also quite good. I remember like the, the liking the Nightwing. The Nightwing one is, it, it's Dick in a femme fatale story. Dick, Mary, goes undercover with a black widow to figure out if she's really killing her husbands. Hmm, that's interesting. I have next to no recollection of the Detective Comics one at all, which does not bode well. Because if I if I don't remember it, that's not good. Or the Catwoman one, for that matter. I remember really liking the Hitman one, the Starman one. I was not a big fan of the Justice League one. I remember that too, that that one didn't do anything for me. I'm kind of curious to now go back and read all of these pulp annuals because of how much I've enjoyed. I enjoyed this one. And I mean, the Legends of the Dark Knight one wasn't bad either, but this one is definitely head and shoulders better than the Legends of the Dark Knight one. Also, because uh, this past Saturday, uh, I went to a con up in North Jersey and did some, some dollar bin diving. And I was actually able to find a copy physical copy of the annual uh we're gonna do a bit we haven't done in a while oh we're gonna look at the ads we are gonna look at the ads all right we haven't done this in a while we haven't because we haven't had a good physical copy but i do so the inside front cover is the ultimate hip-hop party 1998 Ooh, 16 of today's hottest Head nodding hip hop hits. Oh, that ad copy, not written by a person of color. Nope. I mean, we've got, you know, I mean, Lil Kim, LL Cool J, Tribe Called Quest, Wu Tang, R. Kelly, back when, you know, yeah, some of that has not aged well. All right. So 97, correct? Yeah, this is coming out in 97. So as with cars, model year is the year ahead. Nintendo 64, I'm guessing. I, we'd have to see. Okay. This is a CD. Uh, we got 
the uh, Hard Rock Live Concert Tour. Ooh. Uh, August 3rd, or um, not a tour, I guess it's, uh, oh, this is VH1. VH1 Concert Series at Hard Rock. So we got, you know, John Fogarty, Paul Notes, the Indigo Girls, coming to pay-per-view, Mars Attacks. Ah, what a delightful little film. Uh, an in-house speaking ad. of pierce brosnan yes an in-house ad for a new hawk and dove miniseries when we were trying to do a completely new version of hawk and dove since the original ones were currently dead or evil with a copy of she wears body armor he wears baggies she carries a big gun he carries a bass guitar she wants justice. He wants to party. <laughs> a Catwoman plus Scream Queen one shot. They did a series of these where they were trying to get people to read a book called Scare Tactics about a rock band of monsters. And so they teamed up each member with a more popular DC character for a one shot. And Catwoman was with their lead singer who was a vampire. Uh, okay. I can kind of see why that didn't work out. So the, I, I recall they cram a lot of the ads in the back after so they put them in like the chapter breaks. We do have a subscribed DC Comics ad using the comic Major Bummer as the art. Doug Monkey. Uh, we'll get back to okay, one page that we'll get back to at the end. This is 52 pages of story in a 64-page book. And at the back are a bunch of house ads for Flash Month coming up in September, which gave us a Flash t-shirt, Flash Secret Files number one, the Speed Force one-shot, and the beginning of Grant Morrison and Mark Miller's run on the Flash. Legendary uh, best of friends at this point. Oh, yeah. Batman Mask, which we covered recently. Legends of the Dark Knight 100, Batman versus Predator 3, a couple of upcoming Pulp Heroes annuals, Starman and Impulse number 2, and this year's Adventures annuals, Batman Adventure Batman and Robin Adventures annual 2, Superman Adventures annual 1, and Adventures in the DC Universe annual 1. And the back cover is for a computer game called Ooh. The Space Bar. You've been ordered to interrogate all suspicious-looking characters. Better make it a double. A comic sci-fi adventure CD-ROM by Steve Moretzky, where even the drinks look suspicious. But the other thing that we have in here is the page about upcoming books from DC, or you know stuff going on in the DC offices like the trip to the Chicago Comic Convention on Independence Day weekend with you know, pictures of Dan Raspler and John Ostrander at a signing, uh, a bunch of people cosplaying the Legion of Superheroes, upcoming online appearances in Q&As with Jim Ballant, Chuck Dixon, Mike Barron, Mark Wade, and Brian Augustine, and then the upcoming books from the next couple of weeks this week and next week including copy for this book where 
this is not accurate to what happens in this comic, but this is the worst Joe Potato pun ever. Joe Potato is in love with the TV reporter, but she's just a commentator. Uh, yes. The worst. JLA 11, the, the Justice League. A lot of crossovers to the Genesis event, which if we can avoid ever covering, I will be very happy as it is one of my least favorite DC crossovers. But yeah, those are all of the ads and things in the Shadow of the Bat annual number five. I'm surprised that not a lot of video game ads. Yeah. CDs and music and in-house ads. But do we have any other comments? Gorgeous cover, but all of those Pulp Heroes annuals had beautiful painted Pulp-inspired covers. That's that's kind of the deal. Uh, but I think that's that's everything I've got. Oh, that means it's time for Batman Shadow of the Bat annual number five. I was the love slave of a plant-based killer on the big board. So we've already established that this is better than I Am a Gun, the Legends of the Dark Knight pulp annual at 223. Yes. So we are moving up from there. Is this better than 182 Fever, the first appearance of the ventriloquist and Scarface? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. I'd say this is better than the Scottish Connection at 169. That was my next spot that I was going to ask. But I don't I think that's we're getting near where we're we're going there. Because I don't know if this is better than 158, Fearless, Ed Brubaker's first two issues of Batman. Is it better than another one-off? Batgirl Day One, the Batman Adventures issue that's the first appearance of Harley Quinn in comics, which is a, a wacky caper with Harley and Ivy trying to kidnap somebody, Catwoman trying to steal a diamond, and Babs getting mixed up in the middle of all of it. I don't think I could put this above Batman 89 at 164. So I would obviously say that Batman Adventures uh, Batgirl is better. What about Batman Grendel at 166? Another one with a touch of the... The noir all the Hunter Rose Grendel stuff has a touch of the noir to it. You're the Grendel expert. You, you'd have to tell me on that one. Well, that's the thing. The issue that pulls that down is that there's so little in there to make it clear about the world of Grendel. It made perfect sense to me because I know that stuff. Mm -hmm. But you were a bit turned around by all of that. Flummoxed. This at least completely tells its story. You don't need to have understood anything else. But knowing so much about Joe Potato, it made the story that much richer. True. I will say, as, as Raffaele has grown as an artist, the stuff, his more recent stuff is much better. Wagner's art in Batman Grendel is head and shoulders above the art here. Yes. I think it's either above or below Batman Grendel. Because I think it's definitely above the Robin annual below that. That is just yet another version of the origin of Dick Grayson. Let's go below. Okay, so it is the new 167 then? New 167. And hey, that does it for tonight. Next week, 
Sam Hopper has requested an episode focused on Batwoman, so I'll be reading stories of both Kate Kane and Kathy Kane. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grove, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Yitz, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sergioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne. McThorny! For their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for a weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.